Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Today, I'm joined once again by my good friend, Dale Stenberg, and today we're going to talk about fear. We're going to do that because Dune just came out, uh, and mm-hmm. if you know anything about Dale and me, you know that we were really, really excited for the new adaptation of Dune, and uh uh, you know, we're not going to uh, uh, review the film. Uh, nevertheless, there's a theme in the film and there's a theme in the book uh, that is uh, fairly rampant throughout. Uh, and it is the theme of fear. There's this famous, uh, mm. what do you call it, Dale? The the litany. Against fear. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have the, the text of it? Yeah. So maybe that's the way we'll get into it. We'll sort of, I'll read the litany against fear because you and I have discussed this um, yeah. in our conversations and then we'll talk about fear. Yeah. Uh, so this is the Benny Gesserit sort of, um, well, without going into a deep explanation, this is, these are the sages that are sort of pulling the strings of reality to craft a plan for the entire cosmos. Uh, and one of the things they're concerned about is fear. Uh, and here's their litany. It says, I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Uh, so, you know, Herbert was a genius in writing the book. Uh, but I think that he's on to something there. And Joe and I um, have been talking about fear off and on, I mean, for months, really. It's yeah. been sort of sprinkled into our conversations. Yep. Uh, but, but last night we had a, a good conversation about fear. And so I think it'd be worth it to sort of look at it, analyze it, pull it apart. And uh, yeah. It's fascinating fear, that in scripture, you know, uh, I, I've seen this claim repeated every so often i don't i don't know if it's precisely accurate but the uh it's often repeated that the most common command in scripture is the command do not fear and that in fact i think somebody counted up that it's 365 times so mm-hmm. i'd love to see somebody write a redemptive historical uh, uh a year-long devotional based upon every passage that says do not fear um, uh, uh, but it, it's fascinating that that is, you know, if it's the most common utterance in scripture and, you know, you think about the amount of times, you know, an angel appears or something, or Jesus says to the disciples, do not be afraid. Uh, it, it's fascinating how it's fascinating if that is its degree of prominence, uh, because I don't, my own sense is that in, in, uh, Christian discourse, or at least contemporary Christian discourse, it's not talked about that much, or if it is, it's talked about in somewhat general ways. We can mm. all, for instance, just say like, everybody has fear, don't be afraid, et cetera, et cetera. But how deep does fear go and how does it animate us? A sort of grammar of fear, an exegesis of, of the thing that is fear. Uh, mm. I don't see a lot of discussion of that, or at least at, at least you know, in my, own, in my own experience, there are some notable and good exceptions, but not, not, not a lot of them. Uh, so it strikes me as something to as something to have a clarified mind about, particularly I think in our time because one of the things maybe we'll discuss I'll I'll just ask this and maybe you can say what you think about it and that is uh, courage. You know, uh, there's a lot of in our in our civilization in our current cultural moment all over really this kind of spectrum of the culture wars. 
there's a sort of encouragement to courage, which one might think of as a sort of fearlessness. You know, what we really mm. need these days are courageous men to stand up for the truth. And you see that on a, on a kind of lefty inflection, right? You need to speak truth to power, or you need to write that hashtag so brave book or support your hashtag, you know, be hashtag so brave and support your friend when they blah, 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 blah on Twitter. Uh, you know, everybody is wanting to sort of script themselves, interestingly, it seems to me, uh, into this grammar of courage. Uh, mm. And I wonder, uh, how does that relate to fear? Because it, it, you know, ostensibly, it looks like uh, fear is the problem, encourages the solution. But is there a way in which this kind of contemporary and I suppose I'm giving away my, my my tipping my hand here. This contemporary parody of courage uh, yeah. uh, is there a way in which it is actually really sublimated fear in a lot of ways? Yeah, mm. I uh, I led a Sunday school in First Corinthians sixteen thirteen thirteen or fourteen I think it is where it's like stand firm, be a man, uh, you know, make sure that you love one another. And um, I talked about courage, because I do think that the modern understanding of courage is sort of like removing the fear, like what it means to be courageous is to not feel fear. What's right. interesting, what's interesting about the Bene Gesserit litany is that uh, it talks about sort of absorbing the fear, hmm. sort of understanding the fear, not running away from it and letting it pass through you. Um, and then you'll remain once the fear has gone, because fear inevitably diminishes, mm -hmm. uh, unless you have some sort of really bad psychological disorder where you're caught in just a, a world of fear. But barring the exception, I think most people think that courage is the lack of fear, where I don't think that's what courage is at all. I think what courage is, is in spite of fear, pursuing mm -hmm. that which is good. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, you get the famous uh, slaying the dragons metaphor uh, that a lot of Christians are using right now. Very apt metaphor, I think. I mean, the Bible talks yeah. about slaying dragons. But it's not as if, you know, the uh, lonely knight that marches up the mountain to get the princess uh, and has to face the dragon doesn't feel a certain level of fear. It's just that the fear doesn't cripple him to the point of inaction towards that which is good, which is right. saving the princess. So um, I think most people would, uh, in, in this sort of like courage conversation that we're all having, it would be better for people to sit in fear and understand what it's doing to them. And that is actually what courage takes, uh, is to not to run away from that which is frightening or induces these sort of panicky, fearful uh, responses but to absorb the fear and then in by yeah. faith move out into that which is causing the fear in order to overcome it right right well both what, what i think you see a lot of is like you know let's say on the right you know you sort of get the the kind of critique of oikophobia you know like they're mm. disintegrating kind of the local in a sense of place and home and on the left it might be a, a sort of emphasis on justice or something like that there you know to to make common cause with these people is to compromise inevitably what will be the just and yet to a large extent, even even if there are truths, even if there are likely those are likely outcomes, 
there is still a large extent into which our, our reaction to that, our response to that is mediated or unmediated by fear and or sincere courage. And I think what a lot, a lot of what we call courage is, is kind of a manufactured script. That is to say, it's sort of like, um, and we're hungry for it. We're very hungry in the modern world, especially men, to have something to be courageous about, in yeah. fact. Uh, and so it's it, it sort of, uh, and, and so these situations come along and actually feed something that we're hungry for anyway. Um, but, but usually in a mode that uh, does not have the character you described earlier, which is it's not it's not the kind of courage that is in the facing of a fear. It's a courage that is kind of performed when the fear has been run away from. And the difficulty, the, the challenge of courage from a keyboard is that it's not very costly. You look at somebody like Jordan Peterson, one of the reasons he actually, I think, had the, the ethos and the pathos that he did is because when he first started sort of speaking out about the things that he did, it really was a costly thing to say out loud. It wound up going well for him, but the initial entrance onto the scene to speak publicly was a costly thing. Most of the time, people are being hashtag so brave, whether on the right or on the left, they're doing so from within communities uh, that not only not only it would be suspicious if you weren't doing that, but valorize the very mm. doing of that. And all it does is actually give you social gain and social cred and get, get you looked at a certain way. Uh, yeah. It's not very costly. Uh, and I think cur real courage is sober. It's uh, uh, and in fact, you don't want your generals. Uh, it's one thing to have the foot soldiers sort of out in the war, sort of joking and being, you know, jovial or whatever. But the generals especially uh, aren't supposed to have the kind of courage which is mere bravado. The generals especially are supposed to have the kind of courage which is costly and extremely sober, even a little tragic. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's what I was going to sort of uh, follow up with what you're saying is just to say, even if you frame yourself as taking, let's say, just a stance on social issues, and there's a right. gazillion that you could take. Yeah. Uh, the phenomenon that you're describing, I see it all over the place. I see it on the right and the left. It's all over the place. It doesn't take a lot of courage for a Hollywood actress to stand up when she's receiving her Emmy Award and talk about how, you know, climate change or whatever or LGBTQ stuff, because she lives in an environment that's gonna applaud her no matter what she says about any of those hot button topics. In the same way, if you live in a sort of uber conservative uh, environment and you stand up and you say something against them, it's not gonna cost you within your community. Now, I think what could happen though, is one could mistake courage. One could be, uh, one could be stupid and consider his stupidity or her stupidity as courage. In other words, they could be so inflammatory, not sober-minded, not ordered, erratic, passionate, not controlling oneself, and then they they get consequences for their actions and, and their rhetoric, and then they retreat to the moral high ground or the virtuous high ground of courage. Well, it took me a lot of courage because I received right. all of these negative, uh, I, I was yeah. impacted negatively for my courageous opinion. Um, and so there really is a fine line to walk between understanding true courage 
versus putting yourself in a position a position that's going to cause you harm for articulating your opinion unnecessarily yeah so you really do have to come to a sort of sober-minded level-headed uh prudential settling of the soul to say here are the mount here are the hills that i'm willing to die on yeah here are the things that i'm willing to say and i'm going to be courageous if i have to be if i have to say those things or pick or, or die on that hill but nevertheless i want to navigate my life wisely so that i don't make everything i believe into a hill to die on from which i just claim oh i'm being courageous that's why i'm being hurt uh, so it really does come down to wisdom. Wisdom is that fine, that 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 properly ordered soul that can navigate sticky things where it both uh, manifests itself as courage uh, and prudence. Yeah, the the virtue ethics tradition, in fact, when it looks at courage as the mean between two vices, one of the vices that it sort of stands betwixt is the is the vice of recklessness. Which yep. is the which is sort of the excessive vice. It's sort of it looks like courage, but it's really not courage. And it is what you just said. It's sort of uh, in the just war tradition even has this. It's unjustified award just because you know your honor demands it. Uh, you in fact have to be you have to fight a winnable war uh, in the just war tradition. Uh, and so there's all these sorts of things that curb in classical discourse about courage. Courage as a sort of passion you know, that you react with or something like that. Um, you know, another example of this, and I, Dune is interesting. One of the things the film captured very well, and I think it's also, uh, I'll mention an example of this in Lord of the Rings, uh, but one theme that the film captures well is the struggle to take up the task uh, mm. that courage is supposed to be for. Uh, and so it's not a lot of talk of courage these days, I think, comes from a sense of wound. Uh, I'm wounded and then courageous courage somehow gets attached to uh, a, a reactive spirit that is moving with quote, quote, courage from a place of wound, whereas courage is really a vocation. It's a calling. Mm -hmm. It's a thing that comes to you. And, and uh, what's fascinating about the character of Paul in both the book and in the film is you see the struggling emergence of somebody for whom their calling is not necessarily, uh, it's not necessarily something they're all bravado about. There's even some yeah. resistance to it because, you know, sort of the old theme heavy is the crown, right? On the mm. one hand, it is manly to want to rule, to want to reign, to want to be, to take up that responsibility gladly and to sacrifice. And yet on the other, uh, it would be hard to trust somebody that did not, that did not appear sober about yeah. the inadequacy of a mere mortal to take up certain callings. Uh, and when you don't see both of those notes, you know, there's something off. And, and, and the, the best example I know of that is, uh, Lewis, Lewis's, uh, sorry, not Lewis, Tolkien's contrast between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Ralph yeah. Wood, who's a literary guy, he's a, a professor of literature at Baylor. Uh, I remember him in, a, in an interview making this point. And once you read Lord of the Rings with this distinction in mind, it's all over the place. It's quite fascinating. But he makes the distinction between an adventure and a quest. 
and an advent uh, the hobbits an adventure uh bilbo titles it there and back again it's it's a circle uh it's you know bilbo the anxious hobbit needs to leave the shire to go do something uh and he has every thought that he's going to come back it's something he chooses for himself to go upon etc that's an adventure that's vacation it's leaving and coming back a quest, on the other hand, Lord of the Rings, Ralph Wood argues, is a quest. It's something foisted upon you. Frodo has the ring. He can't not have the ring. He doesn't want the ring. He doesn't want to go to Mortar and drop it in. None of these things are things he would choose for himself. But courage is not just being the guy who gets the thing, and then he just naturally is like, well, I guess I got to go drop the ring in Mount Doom now. Like, right, right. that guy's a little, that guy's actually a little weird. Uh, yeah. it's, it's, there's a, so you see Frodo, I'm reading the book to my kids right now, and when you get into the weeds of it, the amount of, the amount of pages that Tolkien laboriously writes of each little step of Frodo processing the full implications of his task and doing it soberly and, and at each stage sort of wishing, man, I wish it could be otherwise. That's mm. the that's the spirit that actually winds up being the true courageous one who can mm. actually fulfill the task and take it all the way to Mount Doom and defeat the enemies. Uh, yeah. And so it's a very interesting depiction of courage and what I think it, I think what, what it's actual textures, if you will. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. I mean, so, and I don't think that we have a lot of quests these days. So one thing about the modern age is that we have a bunch of options. Uh, Joe and I were talking last night, you know, 500 years ago, uh, before the advent of, you know, the, the technological age, the industrial revolution, before life became easier because of machines, you really had to interact with reality. You had to interact with the natural world. You depended on rain, you depended on soil, you depended on community, uh, but you were also um, in vulnerable, vulnerable positions if you were weak or if you weren't very smart. And the threats to your safety and the safety of your family or your livelihood were multiplied. Uh, whereas today we have a lot of social programs that are Put into policy that help the vulnerable that help the people that really can't perform complex tasks to survive uh but survival and you know even go back more than 500 years survival in the ancient world meant that if you pitch camp somewhere and a bobcat's outside of your tent the amount of fear that you're gonna feel needs to be situated within uh a plan to survive whatever the thing is that's going to potentially kill you and your loved ones. Um, in the modern age, we don't have that problem really. Uh, we can escape fear, to get back to what you were saying at the beginning. Um, we can sort of distract ourselves from that which makes us fearful. So if I feel an overwhelming amount of fear, I have a variety of options that I can choose from in order to escape that mindset of being afraid. I can distract my mind with digital sedation, um, endlessly scrolling through Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or whatever, or watching YouTube, yeah. just to distract my thoughts. Or from you can patchwork with... your community so that you don't yes. have to deal with anybody you're afraid of. 
Yeah, right. And I can make my own little universe that I yeah. feel comfortable with that I'm right. not exposed to. And I can escape this uh, analysis of fear. And I think that's what we're missing, which is why I think we have this this fake sense of courage emerging in the modern age. Yeah, it's a LARPing. It's a kind of it's a sort of LARP. We're yes, inventing inventing enemies not not that they're not real enemies out there but the enemy is miscalibrated and misidentified because we're so hungry to have an object in a sense i think to to act interestingly as the kind of cathartic you know totem yeah <laughs> of, of or maybe or space. maybe or we have the option to just not deal with anybody. Uh, yes. We have we have the option to just sort of sedate ourselves in this little secluded bubble of comfort, yeah, uh, to where we don't have to feel the nasty things that pull at us. Uh, and I think that when you're encounter when you encounter situations that you can escape from, your ability to handle those situations is greatly stunted because you haven't developed the muscle. Like you haven't exercised that part of you that can process fear in a healthy way because all you know is escape. Right. Uh, and I think a lot of people really do count escape. And I'm not making the case here, and I want to be clear that it, running from something terrible that's on the horizon is cowardly. There's plenty of situations yeah. that you should run away from. Yeah. What I am saying is that in the modern age, it makes it very easy to run away from anything that would cause fear. Yeah. When that happens and you create a pathology of doing that, you lose the ability to squarely look at the thing that makes you afraid in the face and digest it and understand it and let yeah, it pass. Yeah, you think? Let it pass. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Pilgrim Faith Podcast. The Pilgrim Faith Podcast is a podcast of the Davenant Institute. Our previous episodes can be found by going to youtube.com slash Davenant Institute. The project that Joe and I are interested in is using human wonder to fuel the quest for Christian wisdom. We have interviews with authors and have conversations about topics that interest us. If you find that this content is intriguing and sometimes challenging, but nevertheless edifying, and you'd like to support the project financially, then in the comments section of the YouTube episodes, there's a link that you can access and give any amount to help Joe and I continue to produce content like this. We hope that you will enjoy the rest of this podcast, and we look forward to seeing you on the next one. You think about this like relative to marriage, it would be interesting. What if, what if people, well, in fact they do, but what if people applied to their own marriages, uh, the mentality relative to fear and courage that we apply to civilizational structures. So one of the things that happens in marriage, you know, you and I have both been married for a decent couple of years to, you know, especially together. But one yes. of the things that happens in the struggles of marriage, for instance, is that the, the, the present conflict, the tension, the pain, the wound, the whatever it is that you trigger in each other, um, 
you become fearful that the experience you're having right now is some sort of some sort of totem of the whole future of your relationship. So you feel trapped. Oh, I'm in this marriage where this is the story. This guy's this way. I'm this way. Never the twain shall meet. It's just too hard to kind of tweak the algorithm such that the output could be different. And even if we did, you know, would would that output be actually a thing that I wanted? And you sort of reduce the, the kind of infinite world of personal souls and the electricity mm. that can go on between them to, to some predictive calculus that really is rooted in fear. I'm afraid that I'm not going to get what I want. Uh, yeah. And so what do people do? They either check out or they go, they go find quote, quote, something they want. And whereas the real, the real thing is, is that you actually just can't look at marriage that way. You can't, you can't, you, it doesn't mean you don't have fears that, oh no, is this the futural kind of direction of this, the relationship we have here. But what it does mean to, you know, use that language, you face that fear and you let it pass through you into reality so that what really remains is you in a marriage that just is what it is and all you can do is move it toward the good and actually live in hope that what God can do on the other side of that is bigger than your imagination. And actually yeah. those who do that, um, um, you know, you actually watch their marriages improve. You and, yeah. and I think if you were to, again, take that to kind of civilizational structures, very often you get the sense that, okay, here I am in the suburbs. Here's what's going on in the local public school and the local magistrate and the local this and the local that. And if all of that is what it is, I'm never going to be able to have the society I want or the, uh, my children are never going to live in the neighborhood I want them to live in. My, my, our body politic is never going to look the way I want it to. And that is legitimate to be disappointed about. There's nothing, there's nothing sure. wrong with feeling the natural drive toward those things and to be disappointed that you live in a context where acquiring them is difficult. But what can be a problem is if you don't, if you don't look at that and part of you isn't firing toward, okay, this objective good is lacking in the world. Maybe it's actually your job to go give it. Maybe this, maybe, maybe the 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 oikos, the oiko-consuming juggernaut of modernity, uh, is a place where you who long for home, for households, uh, or if you're you know on another side of things, longing for justice, uh, maybe your job is actually to provide home in a homeless world. Maybe your job is actually to be in that neighborhood where there's a lot of people who are existentially homeless and be the one couch they can cry on because they don't have that in their community. I remember, yeah. uh, and this is actually very common in working class communities, is that sort of uh, openness of the door to absorb the pain that's out in the street. Uh, I think this is sort of intuitive to a lot of those communities and the kind of the kind of like, nah, this isn't quite the algorithm I wanted. Let's go make another one. Uh, that's a that's a <laughs> that's yes. a privileged way to look at the world. <laughs> yes, yes, and that's and that's what and that's really what I'm signaling is that we don't we're not forced to face down the thing that makes us afraid anymore. We have a we have a whole bunch of options that we can escape the hard work of whatever we're afraid of. Right. Um, so uh, I want to talk about this for just a moment. I really want to ask you a question. Oh, yeah. Um, so 
fear is used uh, not only in a pejorative, like do not fear in the scriptures. Yes. Uh, but fear is actually used in a positive sense too. Fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning yes. of wisdom. Yes. I think there's a certain value then in fear. Mm. Uh, now, I know we would make a distinction and language is tricky and we could get into some philological studies of how this was translated to yeah. this and this and this that ends up as fear in our Bibles or whatever, our English Bibles. But I think the concept is still there. Um, God is some, God is to be feared. Uh, and then once that fear is realized, then you actually begin the journey of wisdom. So yeah. there's a, there's a value to, to fear. Um, I think that when you, you know, talk to people about, you know, why are you afraid? It's normally to comfort someone, but I wonder if there's a utility to fear in which we can like leverage that feeling of fear in the minds, in the psychological state of people, because fear really is a psychological state that manifests physically mm. in our body. Uh, but if we can leverage that in order to propel them towards the, the, the call of lady wisdom, yeah. how, how does that happen? Like, what is the value yeah. of fear in our life? Yeah, facing, facing fear is an interesting example because obviously, right, there's almost the, um, there's fear in a kind of general way where I'm sort of afraid of a, of a concrete situation or reality. There's fear in the kind of immediate, like I see the lion and I experience fear. And it's sort of like a necessary sort of emotional state in order to get you on the, on, you know, get you the right stance or whatever, so that you can, and the, and the goal of course is not to, you should be afraid of the lion, <laughs> but it's, yeah. to, but you, uh, what courage is, is to kind of be able to move outside of that fear uh, and to get into a calm space to 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 think coolly, you know, in that in that situation. Um, but fear of God, I mean, in one way, what does it mean to have a the right approach to fear? I think it's to convert all fear into fear of God. So it's remarkable how much fear mm. in Scripture is. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of the angels. Don't be afraid of Jesus saves us from the fear of death. All of these things feel godlike to us. Death has such a cosmic, comprehensive power. The angels feel so much more powerful than us. The kings feel so much more powerful than us. But none of them are God. And in a sense, what the Bible, I think, does with all of those moments of fear is, it's, is, it, is it relativizes them. It says, hmm. don't be afraid of this. Don't be afraid of what you're going to eat or drink. Don't be afraid of that angel. Don't be afraid of that thing. Be afraid of God. And what's fascinating is God is both the, the object to fear, but also the object who relieves fear. And that's interesting is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. The fear of the Lord is also the, the object of our fear is also the object of our hope and the object of our trust. And that's why the fear of the Lord is not living in fear, because the object that is apt to be feared is also the object uh, that is apt to relieve your fears. And so in a sense, there's almost a sense in which you can't face your fears. Uh, I don't know that your fears can ultimately pass through you unless they're absorbed in God himself. Yeah. So what, what tends to happen in, I think, moral traditions where people think they've overcome fear 
uh, is that they overcome it through the stoic move. In other yeah. words, it's 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 not letting fear have its full weight through me, sort of absorbed in the reality that is God. Uh, it's rather uh, I get myself into a psychological state that is somewhat maybe even not normal for a human and sort of let myself only receive these real signals of reality and just ignore these ones through mental discipline or something like that. It's sort of yes. stoic removal. Whereas I think a lot of what's in scripture is actually pressing into the fear. Uh, don't fear this, don't fear this, fear this scarier thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually that you're not, you're not fearing enough is your problem. Uh, yes. That was so one of my favorite scenes uh, in Dune uh, was when, uh, and, you know, go watch the movie, but read the books. I, I highly recommend the audio, uh, the audible versions I listened to. I didn't read the physical books. I listened to the audible. They were fantastic. <clears throat> and the, and the movie was so faithful, but in the beginning, Lady Jessica, who's part of the Benny Jesseret, takes her son, Paul, uh, to the sort of um, mother Benny Jesuit who functions directly as an advisor to the emperor mm. of the known galaxy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and the mother Benny Jesuit is administering a test to young the Paul. Jabbar, yes. The Ganjabar, where he's got to put his hand in this machine that inflicts just incredible pain. And his mother, Jessica, is on the outside of the chamber that they're doing, that, that they're performing the test in. And she knows the consequences that if Paul fails, he's going to die. And this is her beloved son. And she put a lot of hope in, in willing that she would have a male uh, not to get into the details, but like the Bene Gesserit are just women. And she took a gamble by willing a male into existence. And so right. all of her hope, all of her life, all of her labor is finding a sort of peak. If her son dies, it's all for naught. And she's standing outside the door and she, you know, connects with him sort of in like some telekinesis and she be, and she's shaking and she's crying and she's and she's riddled with fear and then she begins to recite the litany against fear until her body goes completely calm her face changes her disposition changes because she has completely absorbed the fear and it has passed through her and all that remains is her and i resonate with that so deeply because i have found myself in similar situations I think I'm I'm like most modern people. Hmm. Uh, the mornings are very difficult for me because when I open my eyes in the morning, I get a sort of uh, prescient to keep in the dune sort of uh, ethos, a prescient flash of all the things I'm failing at. This happens late at night too. Like, here's how you're failing with your son. Here's how you're failing with your daughter. Here's how you're failing with your wife. Here's how you're failing with your family. Here's how you're failing with your church. Here's how you're failing in your job. Just beep, 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 beep. Uh, just a constant sort of uh, frame of shame that I live in, in which it's very easy to escape if I want to, 
but the most relieving parts of my life have been when I lean directly into it, which is what you're talking about. When I just give myself over to, yes, that's a failure. Okay, why? And you dig deeper and deeper and deeper into the whole uh, sort of organic network of failures you can see where you're going wrong on a whole bunch of different registers. And then you commit it to God. One thing that you've been very good at in my life, Joe, Joe has this wonderful metaphor, guys, and I think everybody should pick it up and use it. He said to me one time, all you need to do with your sin is hot potato it to God, or hot potato it to Jesus. When you feel it, just give it right to Jesus. What I think in a, a deep analysis of fear allows us to do is hot potato, not just circumstantial sort of manifestations of the root of the problem to Jesus. It allows us to throw the root of all of the things directly to Jesus yeah. and find comfort. But you yeah. can't actually do that unless you dig through the levels of things that are making you fear about all of the ways that you yeah. can be wrong or fail. So it really is sitting inside of a headspace of fear and confronting everything that you're afraid of and saying, I'm, I'm going to conquer that thing. I'm going to look it in its face and I'm going to acknowledge that it's there. I'm not going to run away from it. And then I'm going to hot potato it directly to Jesus and feel yeah. the relief Right. The comfort, the overcoming of fear is found in Jesus. It really, and I yeah. don't mean to sound like a Sunday school level. No, of like it's no, all but Jesus. This, this is, this is almost a history. It's, it's interesting. I, I've mentioned this maybe once or twice on the program before, but Patrick Steffen's dissertation was so fascinating to me. It was, he was published, uh, uh, the power of resurrection published by fortress press but one of the things he shows is how christianity spread largely because it helped an enormous amount of the population in rome to overcome mm. the fear of death so yes. caesar's caesar's power was entirely a power over the body uh that's what kept everybody in line and the moment you have a resurrected one on the cross the symbol of caesar's power over the body becomes the very symbol of Caesar's defeat through this thing called resurrection. Now, you know, you read Jesus in, in, in Revelation, right? I have the keys, not, not Caesar. I have the keys of death and life. You know, yes. I, I, you know, I am the, you know, you know Jesus is resurrected, basically. Um, that really does in concrete history, the fact that people believe it, even if you don't believe in the resurrection, in concrete history, one account of why, nevertheless, Christianity spread so much is that people, people at least believed in the resurrection, and it caused them to overcome their fear of death and therefore undermine the role that Caesar was having in the empire. Mm. One of the things that's fascinating about that, though, is that that kind of courage and that kind of fearlessness is a fearlessness that really at root is heavenly minded. And so here's what I mean by that. Mm. It's not the courage that says, I'm going to be courageous to have this worldly outcome. Uh, and so I'm going to defy, you know, there's a sort of lot of defy tyrants language these days in all directions. I don't mean that in just a right thing. There's a lot of lefty versions of defy the, the man or the patriarchy or whatever. There's a lot of defy this, but the courage has, 
is almost inextricably tied with a would-be result in the world. Early Christian courage is fascinating because it really is rooted in just having one's hope in heaven. It's not about having some, it's the anti-strategy. It's not a strategy. It's Mm. just most of the Christians lived exactly where they were. They did exactly what they were doing. They were normal people. They lived ordinary vocations in the empire, distributed throughout the empire, but they were unafraid of death. (laughs) And so the reason for the hope that is within you, I mean, that's what spreads uh, throughout the empire. Um, And it seems to me that um, that heavenly mindedness, um, that heavenly mindedness is part of what a real, a real Christian lack of fear is. And I think fear of death is ultimately the thing. You know, philosophers in the 20th century have talked a lot about this, that the human life is sort of structured as being toward death. Death is such a fascinating thing that all humans cryptically confront. You know, it's in the Epic of Gilgamesh as such a primal thing for human beings. Uh, And I think behind all fears in some ways, if we could reduce all fears to something, there is a kind of uh, implicit fear of death of some sort. Yeah. In the structure of fear itself. And, and, and there's a, in Christianity, and I don't even want to make it an itty, not, a, not the ideology, not the ideas, the reality of Jesus really, uh, really did inject into the world some infusion that, that inoculates people against a certain kind of fear of death. Not that we absolutely don't fear death. Uh, but that it relativizes the human fear of death, I think, in a very prominent way. And I don't know that we are intelligibly looking at Christian courage unless we see it wedded to that kind of heavenly mindedness and hope. You know, yeah, maybe it'll all fall apart, but that's okay. Not that I want it to, but I'm just here to serve. It's like if this is the ship and it's leaking and it's sinking, I'm just going to plug holes until it goes down. And if I'm one of the captains on the ship, I guess I'm going down with the ship. You know, yes. like <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I've said this before, Christianity, and I say this both sort of metaphysically, uh, objectively, and sub- subjectively, Christianity for me uh, has been exactly what you've just said, the inoculation against fear. Um, while I still experience fear, and I will until we're dead, right? Uh, but I nevertheless have that anchor that I can sort of hold on to when the wind is blowing and this and and the storms of life just seem unmanageable. I really do have a tether to reality an ultimate reality that holds me from being blown away by my uh, sort of obsessiveness over the thing that I fear. So if I cripple you, because you can cripple yourself by becoming so infatuated with the points of stimulation when it comes to fear that you miss all of the goodness inside of it. I often tell people Mm. uh, sanctification is best understood um, in retrospect. It's only when you look back. In the moment, we all feel like we're 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 failing well maybe there aren't maybe there are some people who think they're not failing uh god bless those people maybe they are maybe they are maybe they aren't but um 
I always feel like I have so much more to learn. I have so much more to grow in. I have so much more obedience to give and thankfulness to give and love to give. And I feel like I haven't dredged the bottoms of my soul to really give out all the things that I should be giving out and that I'm going to be judged on account of that because I'm selfish. Uh, and that starts this sort of like existential crisis that, that if there's not some sort of anchor objective thing that I can grab a right. hold of outside of me, it will consume me and my psychological life will be completely disordered. And where courage comes in, I think, is the ability to uh, uh, analyze the things that spark the fear in the mind and tackle them in a real, uh, a real holistic way, not just superficially, not right. just to say, I guess I'm this and then capitulate and then throw your identity behind whatever this is. Well, I'm just X, Y, Z. And that's the way I respond this way. And so that gives me an out. Now I don't have to do the hard work because I'm whatever. Yes. I'm this way. I'm tuned this way. I'm tuned this way. Since I'm just, yeah, since I'm just crappy, I guess I don't have anything to give, so I won't go give it. Yeah. Yes. Or because I'm, I'm debilitated in this way, or I'm prone like this you know, well, I guess that's just like a psychological thing. And therefore I, there's no work to be done. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing that I can improve there because it's a dent in my being that I'm never going to be able to fix. So I give up when you, what I think, you know, at least for me is mm-hmm. what I try to do is try to dig into the thing that is the dent and say, oh, well, you could just make this move. Like I could spend less time on social media. That is probably the biggest cause of most of my anxiousness and my fear. I could give up some of that. It's not going to, it, I'm, what people say is like, oh, you get addicted to social media. That's true. And I'm not downplaying addiction. Addiction is a real problem. Uh, but it doesn't mean that you just surrender everything yeah, on the trapped. altar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I have a plastic, uh, the plasticity right. of my psychological state means precisely that I can remold it. Yeah. So all hope is not gone. I can actually deal with the problems that I'm dealing with, but I can only do that if I face the thing that makes me afraid. So yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I think one of the things that happens is that you go through all these fears, you face them, you name them. Um, I do think there's, uh, it's interesting. I will face my fear and then I'll let it pass through me. And in some sense, those are different motions. I think one motion is uh, the very fact that you're sort of assaulted in the morning with all of the things you're not doing well, that's also its own kind of meta level fear. In other words, like I think what a lot of people labor under as Christians, especially if you've coming from a certain community is, is it's not just, Oh, I want to be a good boy before God. It's, I just want to be a good boy. Unlike being one of those bad boys. It's, (laughs) it's, it's a sense that you have of yourself that you're afraid of what I, I'm afraid that I'm this kind of thing rather than that kind Mm. of thing. What Paul actually says that I think is fascinating is I just don't judge myself. I don't judge myself before the day. I don't come to my, I don't 
in, in a sense, when that cacophony, that torrential downpour that ultimately isn't just you're this, you're this, you're this, you're this, what each of those thoughts is also doing as inflected by the 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 the, the forked tongue of the devil is this is who yes. you are, this is who 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 you are. And, and I think what Paul can say to each of those moments is, I don't judge myself and neither do you. I'm already judged in one sense in Christ. Uh, I'm awaiting a judgment, but because I don't need to fear that voice because the gospel is true and God is true and let him be true and every man a liar. I don't need to listen to that voice, but I can actually soberly, not reactively, not freaking out. I can soberly stare at all those things and say, you know what? It would be good for me if I drank less or I, you know, whatever the thing is for you. Uh, if it, you know, yeah. it would, it would be better if I, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And actually from a fresh motivation, Another thing I'd add to all of this is um, I think I think one of the things that, you know, when we talk about fear, we tend to think of it as just that kind of being afraid of the tiger sort of thing, right? Yeah. A sort of shallow thing. But I think we perhaps, you know, again, I, I mentioned at the beginning, a lot of people yeah. do talk about fear that, you know, there are plenty of evangelical hot takes on fear. But I do wonder how deep we get in our exegesis of fear in that it seems to me that fear is a very animating, like more than people realize, even those that consider themselves courageous, more animating than I think we realize. And I think when you do see those structures in yourself, you see how deep your own fears go. It's a, it's a bit hard to unsee. Uh, yeah. and, and here's one way I think it shows up is that we don't. I think that a lot of us struggle with putting ourselves in positions of relational vulnerability. Uh, and we don't offer, mm. we don't offer a, a, a vulnerable relationship because we're afraid of pain um, uh, or, 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 you know, or we're experiencing shame because, you know, real men don't, don't do that kind of vulnerable thing or whatever. Yes. yes. Um, and also you're afraid of exposure on another sense, which is, uh, to put yourself in a, in, in, in a, to put your, to put yourself in a position to really long for somebody to, to, to really feel a human desire that somebody would reciprocate to you a certain way. And to put yourself in a position to risk both desiring that thing, but them not giving that to you. And then therefore experiencing that discomfort is also nevertheless the in that very same move that you put yourself in the position of that pain, you also put yourself in the position to give to that person. You also put your you mm. you bring yourself close enough to actually give them the kind of love that I think people respond to in the New Testament. And what you're going to find, I think, what you inevitably find, and this is very uncomfortable. I'm just you know, say that out loud. Just as in marriage, uh, the most uncomfortable thing in marriage is when you're in this, you know presumably vulnerable relationship with one another. That's what it's supposed to be. But you're exposed. All of your crap under the covers comes out and you have to see yourself very objectively. And I think the same thing happens in community life. Uh, the, 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 one of the reasons it's fearful, in fact, to have that kind of vulnerable relationship with one's neighbors uh, is because inevitably in working on that project, which is difficult and slow, and you don't get to select out, you know, people that already whatever with me, uh, your sins are going to have to be confronted. And yes. you're going to, you're going to experience looking bad sometimes, because yep. you're going to sin, 
you're going to yep. sin. <laughs> yes. Uh, and this goes, yeah. and, and I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where the modern age, it's very easy in a sense to deal with fear because of the digital sedation of the modern age. You actually get to craft an identity online uh, that would seemingly present you as the thing that embodies all of the good principles that your clique, your little clan, your little you know theological camp reveres. So you really are signaling to the people in your the people that you respect that here's what I am, guys, I'm part of you, celebrate me. Meanwhile, you're over here and they don't get to see everything else that goes on in your life, like your wife does or your children do, right? or your mother or your father or your siblings or your, or, or your church members. They don't get to see that side of you. So you really can cathartically sort of overcome fear by creating a false narrative about your existence in online communities that reinforce yeah. the vision of yourself. And Joe, I think here's what it is, brother. We're all identity politic. We're yeah. all doing the identity politics thing. Yeah. We're all we're all doing we're all manifesting certain identities to the communities that reinforce us that make us feel good. We're all we're all religious consumers. Uh, yes. that's what really does unite American civilization. And it, saying this out loud is not the same thing as distancing oneself from it. It's to name something about mm -hmm. oneself. Uh, uh, sometimes we act, but, but we're consumers. That really is what unites America literally at a civilizational level. What we as Americans have in common with one another is consumptive patterns, media consumption or product consumption. That is mostly what we share. Uh, and in fact, one of the reasons I think COVID was so hard for civilization is because we saw what happens when you're not allowed to, you know, talk about the Lakers, uh, you know, a whole <laughs> yeah, year right. without sports. Turns out that was important for the American, yeah. literally American civil structure, because those are the threat. And those threads are actually probably harder to sever than people think as well. There might not mm. be a shallow. Uh, in fact, in some cases is, is, is one, one might think. But uh, but but right. There's a way in which uh, there's a way in which we're we're all we're all consumers. You mentioned online communities, but you can see this in incarnate communities as well. It's like I live in the Dallas area, and if you have an automobile on Sunday morning, you have three thousand churches to choose from. Yeah. It, that's like it's just like choosing restaurants. At the end of the day, and if one excommunicates me, I can go down the street and go get another one, and. Most people, including ourselves, when we choose yep. a church, there's an element of that there. And you have to kind of actively fight it in a sense to like not be overly kind of buffet-ish about it. And we can do this yeah. with communities now. Increasingly, there's tendencies. And I'm not, I'm not absolutely judging this, Some like intentional communities, for instance. I don't think they're always bad or anything like that. But that's to, to bring back to Joshua Mitchell when he was on our podcast, talked about supplements yeah. and substitutes. That's always a supplement to the normal thing. The normal thing is you're born and this is your community. The people around you are your community. The supplement is the intentional community project, in a sense. That doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It's, it might be a very good thing. 
but it's not a, but it can also be a, it can also be a thing that gives in to our very own consumerist tendencies when projects get hard. Uh, uh, And I think a a huge part of what we need to think about uh, as Christians in our civilization, and even if that means going down with the ship, in fact, because it's our ship, we're part of the ship. I think is is that we need to be found among the helpers that seek to plug the leaks of the ship uh, and actually be that blessing, be that home in that homeless world, that light in the darkness, uh, and let God, in a sense, let God, in a sense, and not that you can't be strategic and have strategy and all that sort of thing. I actually just think this is an essential. This is that without which no strategy matters uh, is yeah. more more the way I'm, I'm trying to speak of it. Yeah. 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 I think that's brilliant. And sort of as we're winding down here, I'll share one more one more sort of closing thought. And if you've got anything, please. Hmm. Um, I think the only thing that I want to uh, communicate clearly to give our listeners sort of a handle to walk away with the conversation is I want to, I really want to emphasize maybe to a fault, but I really do want to emphasize fear can be healthy Mm. for you. Mm. Uh, Now the Bible says God has given us a spirit of love and not of fear. If you live your life in fear, that's unhealthy. Mm-hmm. But if you embrace fear to see what you can jujitsu out of it for the good, that's healthy. Mm. Fear, I think, sparks, well, fear motivates us to either confront it or run away from it. The biggest leaps and bounds of my spiritual growth have come when I have decided I need to face the fear. I really need to look at it dead in its face. And like you were saying, name it and go to war with it. That's courage. When you exercise that courageous, virtuous muscle, uh, it becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. And it's going to lead you deeper and deeper and deeper into other things that you didn't understand were fearful. Uh, So when you awaken that sense of your life, your inner life, the the life of the mind, just be prepared that's going to drag you deeper into sort of darker circles of of things that make you afraid. Hmm. But if your courageous muscle is being exercised all the way down, then you can do real work. You can do genuine spiritual uh, surgery. You can get down and start cutting out roots of things with the help of the Holy Spirit and the confident assurance that Jesus loves you because the Bible tells you so. Yeah. Uh, Your simple faith in Jesus is the motivating force that pushes you into these layers of darkness and it's your, and it's your, and it's your uh, safety bubble out of the darkness. Yeah. Going deeper and deeper and deeper uh, requires that you look each interval of your fear directly in the face and name it and handle it. Don't run from it. Don't flee. Don't become so overwhelmed that you just crumble up and hide. Move into it. Embrace it. Carry it to your bosom and then kill it. Destroy it. Overcome it with the help of God and learn from it 
and use that as the energy that propels you more and more into your ascent into the light. Yeah, this is this is uh, uh, some manuals, you know, I think even Bavink says this in one place, uh, sometimes even physical sports, uh, physical sports can be a good training ground for young men just to go through the motions of being put in a fearful situation and sort of having to sacrifice, risk sacrificing some pain in the body that's not exactly the same thing as the virtuous overcoming of fear, but it, right. it, it sort of like gives you a sense of like what, what that structure is that can then be cashed out in, in deeper and profounder ways. One thing I'd add to what you said is, um, I think for the Christian that especially takes the form of prayer. So when we talk yeah. about facing our fears, uh, one image we could have really is, you know, that here I am, I'm Paul Atreides, and I've got my hand in the Gamja bar, and I'm just like holding it and sweating, and like, I'll let the fear pit, and then my eyes open and cue the cool Hans Zimmer music, and there I am. You know, maybe there's, maybe there's, maybe that's part of what, what, what happens. Maybe the angels are clapping in heaven, and that's what yes. they're witnessing in your life. But for most of us, what that actually looks like is prayer. In other yeah. words, in other words, facing my fears is not to say I'm actually adequate to face my fears. You're not adequate to face your fears. You're not adequate yes. to overcome the fear of death. We're all wimps. Uh, you know, we all have we're all weak persons in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of, you know, you look at it this way. Jesus himself needed to pray. He yeah. got up in the morning and prayed. And when he was facing his fear in the garden, he faced his fear through prayer. It was through getting and, and getting and in fact needing it so bad that he got his he was trying to get his friends to pray for him. Uh, yeah. His facing of his fear was a, a willingness that came with tears and sweat and blood, uh, but it was ultimately a a delivering of the self over to the Father in faith. And I think our facing of fear and our face, you know, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And similarly for us, I think the moment where we're the most, you know, our moment doesn't necessarily look like the kind of cool guy, you know, in the war film. Uh, yeah. it, it might look like the weak guy who really does learn to depend upon he who is strong so that yeah. his strength is manifested in weakness, as Paul says. And that, in fact, is in a way the Christian hero uh, mm. is the one walking with a limp, but walking. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Good word, brother. Um yeah, I, I, that was, that was, um, yeah, a good conversation. I mean, we could talk more about yes, this thing, of course. obviously. Uh, but yeah, is there anything else you want to add? No, no, that's good. I'm good. All right. So uh, conversation about fear. Um, it's been good. Um, if, if you all want any other um, recommendations on how to deal with fear, just message Joe privately in waves uh and he can help everyone uh, just don't message me i don't have any i don't know yes no but thank you brother this was a yeah. good conversation uh as always you guys can head over to um youtube to check out all the previous episodes uh youtube.com slash davenant institute uh you can also find us on itunes and any of the other uh, podcast catchers. But uh, Joe, good conversation about fear. I love you, brother. Love you too, man. Until next time. See ya.